Jed, before you go down, I want to let you know exactly what Scripture says about mixing different labels. Where did he go? Doesn't it say something? You can't mix seeds of different sorts in the same field and wearing clothing of different labels. Is that what it says? It's an abomination, right? No, while we're on the subject of clothes and legalism, um, I want you to know that our pastoral staff has a soft rule of preaching attire. It's a button-up shirt, a sports coat, and no tie. And that's hard for me because, as you know, I've been wearing a tie every day that since, well, you guys don't know this part, but every day that I've been in ministry, I've been wearing a tie. And so in order to feel okay doing this, I'm actually secretly wearing my, my tie clip around my belt loops. <laughs> so today we're going to be continuing in our series on the book of Proverbs, and it's titled, our sermon today, Loving the Father's Wisdom. I've run into a, a kind of an interesting well, it's a depressing problem that I've found actually in, in conservative evangelical churches, and that's running into these things called ex-evangelicals. Do you guys know what that is? People who grew up conservative and now they've had it. And uh, I, I remember when I first got saved, I'd walk into our conservative Baptist church back home, and I'd look at people leaving, wanting to go out into the world and play, and I would say, why are you going back into the world that almost killed me? And their response was interesting. They would say, why are you coming into the church and its law that almost killed me? And I thought about that quite a lot over the last 12 or so years since I've been doing ministry. And it got me to think that I don't think it's the church that almost killed them. I think that they perceived that the law is, is oppressive, that they think that God's wisdom is harmful and evil because it doesn't want what's best for them but rather that somehow it's just utilized to serve God and, and make him happy, not even considering what the people of the church need in order to be uh, uh, fulfilled and happy and, and uh, enjoy. And that's something that I want to talk about today. So before we continue, I'd like you to turn to the book of Proverbs. We're going to be going through Proverbs 1 through chapter 7, although we're not reading the whole thing, but just uh, thumb there and, and then we'll pray Dear Father, today we, we ask you to teach us to love law, to love obedience, and it's hard, but we need to do it. Even though it's not our nature, we must be transformed, and Father, for that we need wisdom. Lord, let us love wisdom, specifically the wisdom that our Father teaches us, because that's the, the topic today, but Lord, it's all yours and if we should say that your law is oppressive, it means that you are oppressive, and, and we know that the, that's the farthest from the truth. Help us to love you even by loving your law, which commands us to live. Help us to love obedience, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, my wife and I went down south to Des Moines to visit my parents and uh, one thing that, that everybody knows about grandmas is that grandmas' houses, are, they smell funny, and, and, and they've got, like, no toys, but the one thing that they do have is ice cream, like gobs and gobs of ice cream. Grandmas here, is this true? Your house is just known for ice cream? I'm pretty sure. Um, 
Anyway, my son knows that, and, and I'm not exactly sure why he likes going to Grandma's house. Every time we get in the car to drive there, he complains, are we there yet? And then we get there, and the whole time he says, I'm bored. I don't know what to do. There's no snacks. I don't know what to do. But then as soon as we tell him, you know, it's time to go home, he cries and throws a tantrum. I don't want to go. I love it here. And I'm pretty sure it's because of the ice cream, right? And so we went down to visit a couple weeks ago, and I think it might have even been last week, where my wife will confirm this in a minute. Um, we went down, and my mom, she didn't just have ice cream, but she had like popsicles too. And not just popsicles, but like those ones as big as your arm, the, the two-foot one, uh, two-foot-long ones that have got like, I think they pretty much got like a pint of sugar juice just right inside. And so my son found out about this. He looks at that, and he goes, He's eating, a, he's eating one of these popsicles, and he's thrilled. And he goes, Daddy, licking the popsicle, Daddy, can I have an ice cream? And I look at him, and I say, you know what? Yes. When you finish your popsicle, you can have an ice cream. And he throws a tantrum. I couldn't believe it. No, it's not fair. I want it now. And I'm looking at him like, okay. This is strange. And then I entered into what I think might have been the twilight zone because I, I found myself scolding my son saying, now Tristan, he's five, now Tristan, no ice cream until you finish your giant popsicle. And he's sitting here, I'm wondering, like, what world am I living in? I'm like having an out-of-body experience saying this. And then the whole time he's sitting there, no, no, no. And like he runs off into the guest room, slams the door shut because dad's rule is so wrong. And... Of course, my mom's looking at this whole thing like, what in the world is happening? Where did I go wrong raising my son? Where did I go wrong raising my grandchild? But, you know, uh, that's just how five-year-olds are. Uh, they think that their father's law, no matter how kind it is, uh, it's oppressive. Now, I cannot say that I'm the best father, but I think no ice cream until you finish your giant popsicle is good advice, don't you? I think. But his hatred for my nice rule made me remember every serious rule that my father gave to me. And I hated those rules. I hated his advice. I hated his wisdom. I thought they were out of touch or more than that. I thought that he gave those rules and wisdom pieces specifically for his benefit that I may serve him. I've since learned that I was wrong. I've since learned that the wisdom that my father gave me was applicable in all cases. And I've also since learned that while it was applicable in all cases, it was life-saving in most. And I felt that that's appropriate because when it comes to wisdom, Scripture says that wisdom is like a father. And fathers are often the best places of wisdom that we can get. And so we're going to be going through, I never do this, but I'm actually putting the scripture on the screen for you. I'd like to, I like to hear the flipping of the Bible pages, but we're going to be jumping around a little bit. So we're just going to be looking on screen at some sections of Father's wisdoms and how it relates to you. So uh, chapters 1 through 7, just a, a few pieces here. I'll be changing the slides for you. Read, don't read out loud, but read to yourself with me. It says this, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. 
to understand a proverb and its saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to my wisdom and inclining your ear to, or your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find not the knowledge of God. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For strength of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Hear, my, hear O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get, insight, or get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. Now, as we start to dig into this text, I want to ask you guys probably the easiest question you've ever been asked, right? What's the meaning of life? I say that jokingly because that's, that's, the, that's the question the world struggles with. Like, why am I here? What's the purpose? And of course, before I got saved, I wondered the same thing. After I got saved, I, I found it a remarkable thing to answer. It was just so easy, right? I'm, I'm not going to give you the answer yet because I'm going to ask you, right? But what's the purpose? And no cheating, no like looking up, oh, Westminster Catechism, right? What does it say to, to love God and be enjoyed by Him forever? That sounds smart. I, I'm not asking you what that is. I'm not asking you what church says. What's your impulse? What, what's your desire? What do you want life to be about? Is it family, career, success, peace, and pleasure to be the best? Coming from 10 years in a Chinese and Korean church environment, uh, it was kind of funny. Everybody wanted their kids to be saved, and they would always come up to me just before graduation with their youth and say, you got to baptize my kid. He's got to get saved. And they had this like just faulty understanding that there was actually like a heart love for the law involved in being saved. They're just so desperate that their kids would love Jesus. And then, of course, once their kids said, Mom, Dad, I want to be a pastor. They say, why do you got to break our hearts? <laughs> being a doctor is not good enough. You can't go be a neurosurgeon like we want you to be. Everybody has a purpose, and especially when the possibility of honor and wealth and pleasure and peace are within your grasp, it quickly becomes the purpose of life, doesn't it? I exist for the purpose of existing as happily as possible. But I want to suggest my own contribution. I think the purpose of life is instead this. To know wisdom and instruction to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. 
And you may say to me, well, Jeff, how did you say that that's the purpose of life? Well, because I'm a pastor and I'm preaching it. And because everybody knows that whatever a pastor is preaching on at that moment, that's the most important passage in the Bible. So ipso facto, it's the purpose of life, right? Well, maybe. I do like to think that I'm important and the things I say are important. But I want you to look at how similar this is to the actual stated purpose of life that we find in Scripture. And we find it in the book of Ecclesiastes at the very end of Solomon's Contemplations, chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. For God, I fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And what we find is that if the purpose of life is to fear God and obey him, then gaining wisdom and instruction and wise dealing and justice and righteousness and equity. It is your purpose because wisdom on knowing those things is the only way for you to fear and obey. Are, are we following here? Am I losing you? This is just the intermediary step to get to the final step of obeying. First you fear, then you gain wisdom, and then that fear and wisdom produces within you obedience. Now we're going to uncover later this morning that if you should pursue wisdom, then yes, there is a very likely chance that you will gain, as Scripture promises, the reward of honor and pleasure and peace and life and happiness and family and wealth, etc. But this is the most challenging piece of wisdom of all. That while obedience may provide those things, it may. Obedience is the goal, not those things. And so worthwhile is obedience in itself that even if it should fail to produce within you life and peace and wealth and honor, even if it should fail to produce those things, obedience is still a worthwhile goal. Have you learned that? That obedience is worth it regardless of the fruit? So few of us have, because it's not a happy lesson to learn. The book of Proverbs, believe it or not, actually has a structure. <laughs> I look at it and I say, that's a bunch of disconjointed wisdom, but it's got a structure. We have this mystery section that we're going to talk about in a little bit. You could probably guess what it is. But the middle portion is one of the most important portions because it introduces in chapter 8 and 9 the characters of the story, the characters of wisdom and folly. Wisdom, chapter 8, is personified as a woman. She seeks all and calls out to passersby. She is particularly fond of finding and attracting simple men. And she promises to give them prudence sound wisdom and counsel and insight and strength. Folly, on the other hand, in chapter 9, also a woman, also calls out to passers-by, and also desires simple-minded folk. But she doesn't bring them counsel or strength, but death, and usually by the promise of pleasure. And the whole rest of Proverbs after that is dedicated to, to helping you to understand, to discern the difference between wisdom and folly because so similar do they look. The only difference is the outcome. 
but they portray themselves to be the same way. And then, of course, it looks as though the rest of the book is just a whole bunch of disconnected, unrelated pieces of wisdom. Just, this is foolishness, and this is righteousness. This is foolishness, and this is righteousness. And, and it goes on for another 20 chapters or so doing that. The problem is that we have this structure we have the introduction of wisdom and folly. We have the description of what they look like. And we have ways to obey wisdom and not folly. But the problem is, is that we do not need to read too far into the book of Proverbs before we discover that we don't actually want wisdom. <laughs> it's not something that we're inclined to listen to. Instead, we desire foolishness and her promises. Look at Proverbs chapter 1. Verse 4 with me, it says this. It says, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who, gains, uh, one who understands obtain guidance. What's important here is that after listening to the purpose, that the purpose in verse 3 is to gain wisdom, to gain knowledge, to gain insight, to gain understanding of justice and equity and righteousness. Solomon then says, who is in need of those things? And who it is he said, wisdom must be delivered to? The simple, right? Or, or as we may understand it, the naive, the one who does not finish their evaluation of circumstances, but rather just trusts their first immediate impulse. That's what I feel, and that's the way it is. That's a naive person, according to Scripture. But then look further. Who is characterized as being naive? And this is where it's serious. Is it those who are willfully stupid? Is it those who knew the right way but decided to surrender a life of obedience and then follow foolishness? No. Rather, it says to who? Knowledge and discretion to the what? To the young. Simply put, Proverbs says that those who are born of them, all of them are fools by nature. We are born this way. Our desire is to seek our impulse. And it is only by learning wisdom that we may recover out of this state of foolishness that we are all born into. This is what you are. In fact, just encouragement for you, Let's look at all the different kinds of fools described in the first seven chapters of Proverbs. There's a lot. First, there's just the word fool. There's two words for it. This is the one who is fixed on the correctness of their own opinion and has no desire to admit that any other way may be a better way to think. In fact, because they are so stupid, it is, in, it is inevitable that their stupidity will lead to moral perversion. And then the other word is those who are so morally perverse that it will eventually lead to their stupidity. It's, it's like this horrible toilet cycle. <laughs> you just get worse and worse. You're stupid and it makes you bad, and you're bad and it makes you stupid, and this is the fool. Next is the gullible. Those who allow themselves to be persuaded because they pay more attention to someone's promises and hope in those rather than evaluating the reality of what those, whether those promises are attainable or not. Third is the mocker. 
one who hates those who seeks understanding from others. It's kind of like a graduated fool or a, a fully mature fool. They, don't, they not only don't want wisdom for other, from others, but they hate those who do seek wisdom from others. And thus, they seek to destroy those who think differently than them. Commentator Bruce Walt, he says this about mockers. Their bad influence is plain to most, but never to themselves. Number four, the sluggard. One who disdains discipline so much that they harm themselves with scarcity because they think that the effort required to gain plenty hurts more than having nothing. And number five, the senseless. The one who lacks a mind. They act on impulse and do not evaluate the consequences of their action. They are weak in temptation and live in the constant conviction that though their behavior would produce death in someone else, somehow it will produce life and peace within them. And really, the senseless is just an attribute that's applied to all the other four. The fool is senseless. The gullible is senseless. The mocker is senseless. The sluggard is senseless. And the wise among you will recognize your tendency to be every single one of these if you don't control it. Am I right? I'm this way. I'm all five of those. I don't know why you listen to me. <laughs> Thankfully, I have something that tells me. Unfortunately, we're all fools and the calamity that awaits us is great. Scripture says that the fools have consequence. If you are a fool, you will unknowingly set ambush for your own life and eat the fruit of your own suffering. Chapter 1, verse 17 to 31. You will be enticed by sinners who desire only to watch you suffer, and you will follow them. Chapter 1, verse 10 through 17. And it will be easy for them to do so because you always seek to advance yourself even if it requires the expense of another. Chapter 3, verse 28 through 30, 32. To, to give you an idea of what a fool is like, I was watching a YouTube video. It was, uh, I think it might have even been like a late night interview. I don't know exactly, but it was this comedian and his wife's pregnant and he's, he's sitting there and the guy's interviewing and he said, how is it like? Your wife's pregnant, first baby, no, uh, second baby is what it was. Your wife's pregnant, second baby, how is it? And he goes, you know, I, I learned a lesson the first time my wife was pregnant. My favorite thing is how everybody, when your wife is pregnant, people who are pregnant pay attention to this, is that everyone comes up to you and says, oh, it's the most wonderful thing of your life. It's Get ready for ultimate joy. Get ready for the cutest thing ever. It's, it's such a rewarding and, and purpose-giving endeavor. It's so wonderful. And then as soon as the baby is born, they all turn into goblins and say, welcome to your worst nightmare. And he says, why? Why would you do this to me? Why didn't you tell me the truth? And they go, because we wanted you to join us, right? <laughs> you ready, Jackie? I can say, my kids aren't that way. Don't laugh. They're not, most of the time, some of the time. All of my illustrations are, are, today are, are how they are that way, but they're not that way. Um, <laughs> but such is fools. 
Misery loves company, and fools are the devourer of other fools. And to make it worse, your nature is to love it. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? And how long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Proverbs chapter 1 verse 22 says, You have a need that you cannot provide, and that is to obey via wisdom. And lucky for you, your purpose is to be wise, and the purpose of another who has gained wisdom is to share it. Right after saying that the purpose for you to gain wisdom, Proverbs 1 then says, it says, to receive instruction in wise dealing, right, uh, just, righteousness, justice, and equity. And then the next verse, and to give prudence to the simple and discretion to the youth. The need in me produces a requirement in another. And the, the foolishness in me requires the obedience of a wise to impart their wisdom upon me by God's command. Well, ultimately, who is that person? It's God. We know that. But Proverbs personifies this wisdom giver as the Father. These days, as I come home, most of the time I find my son waiting for me at the, at the garage door, and he's in tears. <sighs> right? <laughs> I know what happened, right? Maybe you who have children know what happened, but I get home and what happened? <laughs> Mommy was mean to me. And which means that he did something to get himself in trouble that he wasn't supposed to do. Mom got him in trouble, and now he's tattling, basically, and hoping that I'm going to undo the whole thing. And I look at him and go, I'm not going to undo this. You reap what you sow, buddy, right? Well, one day my wife, I think it was last week, one day my wife goes up to him and says, Tristan, why is it that you always tattle on me to daddy? But when he disciplines you, you never come and tattle to me about him. And five years old, not, without missing a beat, he says, because daddy's a gamer. I trust him. <laughs> also true, none of this is made up. My life is just a mess. Also true, I think it was this week, my wife saw my son playing Mario Kart on Nintendo. So she sits down next to him and says, Tristan, can you show me how to play Mario Kart? <laughs> and she played Mario Kart for the first time in, I think, what was her life. Now, I'm glad to see that he trusts me when I discipline him, but I wish it wasn't because I also play Nintendo. I would much rather him trust me because my judgments are good. The most prominent characteristic of fools in Proverbs is that they are fixed in the correctness of their own opinions and never are inclined to think that their first impulses are wrong. That's the fool. And thus, this is why it is so difficult for us to attain wisdom. Because it requires that you throw away what you think is wise, what you think is fun and good, and to embrace what you currently think is foolishness, painful, and maybe even you think it's evil. Proverbs 7 says that gaining wisdom requires that you take the teachings of another and write them on the tablet of your heart. Or as what you know, Proverbs 3 says that gaining wisdom looks like this. It requires that you lean not on your current understanding, verse 5, but embrace what you cannot understand, 
It requires trusting in the Lord's wisdom with all your heart instead of trusting your heart. Also, verse 5, it requires embracing God's straight path, which you currently perceive are crooked. Verse 6, it means acknowledging the wisdom of your mind is not wise but foolishness. Verse 7, and that what you understand to be good is actually evil. Also, verse 7, wisdom is counterintuitive. How difficult obedience is because it promises for us everything that we count as pain. And thus, even if there were those around us who were to teach us true wisdom, Proverbs constantly gives the warning, do not forsake my, uh, this wisdom. Hear your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Do not forsake my teaching, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 6. Do not forsake wisdom, Proverbs 6, verse 20. Keep my commandments and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Again and again, don't forsake wisdom. Why? Because it's your nature to forsake it. Forsake meaning to take it and drop it to the ground as trash. We have God talking about this when he's talking, I believe it's in, in Jeremiah, where he says that he's going to discard Israel in the same way that a woman cuts her hair and chucks it in the trash. That's our nature, to forsake wisdom, to trample it. Thus, who is qualified to give it? Not only the wise, but the father, or the father figure, or for Solomon, it was his father, and so it is for most of us. But it doesn't have to be the father, just wisdom is like a father. If we go back to the structure, chapter, uh, the middle section, chapters 8 and 9, are the introduction of wisdom and folly. The rest of the book is dedicated to teach you how to obey wisdom and not folly. But what's the first part about? That mystery part we talked about. It's the father's pleading. Why? Because the wisdom he offers, though it is contrary to what we think is wise, it is actually good. Throughout the first seven chapters, consistently hear, O oh sons, a father's instruction and be attentive, not merely telling you to obey, but begging you to understand why so that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. And not just good, but precious as a treasure, worthy enough for you to forsake your current way and to embrace his way. If I count correctly, the Father spends seven chapters describing the nature of his wisdom, calling it pendants of, and garlands of grace and beauty five times, calling it treasures three times, calling it silver and gold twice, calling it life nine times in seven chapters, healing to flesh and bones three times and twice as a lamp or a light that is, quote, as the dawn growing brighter and brighter. And each time that is presented as such, it belabors to prove not merely that you must obey, that the obedience for that wisdom is good and a worthwhile pursuit. It belabors 
that it is good teaching. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and then you will walk securely, and you will not stumble, and when you lie down, you will not be afraid, and your sleep will be sweet. Proverbs chapter 3. Always begging, always belaboring and proving why it is good, and always from the perspective of a father. And so I found three reasons to the best of my ability as to why, though you hate that wisdom, the wisdom of the Father is good. And the first one is this. Because of the Father's nature. The first reason we can trust the wisdom of a Father is because the Father's nature is innately trustworthy. I have shared that growing up I had a stepfather and he was a hard individual. He's since lightened up quite a bit. Or maybe I've just understood him more. I don't know. Maybe a little bit of both. But I've shared that he was hard to live with. Punishment was swift and severe. And while it can be hard to trust an individual under those circumstances, the fact that I wasn't his natural born son, but I was his stepson, made it even just that much harder for me to trust that he wanted what was right for me. Constantly convinced that he, he sets up rules just to make me be his lap boy. But now that I'm older, I can see that while my father may have made plenty of mistakes that I have seen, I have seen him give in to what I think to be incredible rage, something that I also suffer with. And because he's not a Christian, I, I see him daily love things that are objectively sinful. The truth is that as a son, I have been living a 36-year privilege of never witnessing my father do anything hypocritical, never violating his own conscience, and he stands today as a pillar of integrity in my life. Not every father is that way, but the good ones strive to be. And looking back, I can see that every rule my father gave to me flowed from his integrity to bring me life that I may be like him and have my own life. And now I know no one loved me ever like he did. This is the backbone of why it is that we are to trust the, the father character in Proverbs and encouraging to trust your own father. Look, at me, look with me at how the father portrays himself to the son. The verses should be up there. He is the giver of grace and beauty with garlands and pendants of wisdom. The Father is concerned that you do not fall into your own traps of your own devising. Number three, He desires that you dwell secure without dread of disaster. Number four, these, these are beyond wisdom, aren't they? He is the giver of hidden treasures and understanding. Number five, He is the bestower of the shield of the Lord's protection. Number six, he is the one who points out pitfalls of trusting those who pretend to be your friends. Number seven, he is the lengthener of days of life and adder of peace. Number eight, he desires your success and honor among God and men. Number nine, he is the only one who tells you the deceitful power of your own heart. No one tells you that, but the Father does. 
Number 10, he teaches you to love discipline and even depend on it and seek it out, though it is painful because you love its fruit. And number 11, he is a teacher of how to be faithful and diligent, but also he teaches that it is honorable to withdraw when you have overcommitted yourself. And there are many, many, many others. Wisdom beyond wisdom. Integrity beyond integrity. Insight beyond insight. This is the nature of the Father. But look at more at how it's delivered. Hear, my son, for I give you grace. My son, treasure me and my words and commandments. Chapter 2, verse 1. Almost as if to say, treasure my words just as I have treasured you. Oh, sons, listen to me, lest at the end of your life you groan when you are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline. Chapter 5, or my son, do not lose sight of these and they will be life for your soul and you will not stumble. Chapter 3, as hard as the wisdom is and as distasteful as the learning process may be, the father proves that he is a man above reproach. He is blameless. And with that blamelessness, he chooses to love you perfectly. And here's the lesson that he teaches. His purpose is to teach you that just as he loves you perfectly with his blamelessness, that he wants life for you, that he is never oppressive, but that he is patient and admonishing. So also the law loves you perfectly that it wants life for you, that the law is never oppressive, but it is patient and admonishing. Talk about a hard lesson to learn, but the Father does it, and He does it well. Why? Because He's required to by God. This is the very calling that He has to teach you wisdom constantly, Deuteronomy 6, to do so in discipline, Ephesians chapter 6, yet to do so without being harsh or discouraging, Colossians chapter 3. And to do so by teaching his children and his children's children. Deuteronomy 4. The nature of the Father is good. So therefore, the wisdom he gives is good. Yes. That's a, that's a fair evaluation. It's a fair process to go through. So that's the first reason. The second reason that is the proof of the credibility of the Father's wisdom is this. First, it's his nature. Secondly, I find that the wisdom is trustworthy because the promises that Scripture makes for obedience. How many of you guys did a wanna in your family? You can put your hands up. It's okay. All right, next question. This is the real one. How many of you call it awanas with an S? Okay. How many of you hate it when people call it awanas with an S? Thank you. Okay. Bless you, my children. I'm not allowed to do that. I'm not Catholic. But anyway, so the whole purpose of Awana is that we, what? Encourage obedience in children by promising them, anybody? Candy, <laughs> right? You, you say a verse, you memorize it, you get a starburst or whatever it is. And, and I remember I was talking with somebody, um, and they said, isn't that just brainwashing? You are bribing children, Jeffrey. Um, 
and I know that sounded like my mother, but it wasn't my mother, actually. It was somebody else's mother. Um, really, it wasn't my mother. It was, it was somebody else's mother, and, and she was not saved. And, and she thought that I was evil because I was, come here, little children. I'm going to teach you the Bible. It, weird. <laughs> but anyway, um, see, as Nick Ball says, I told him I was quoting him today. He, he's embarrassed. Look, he's turning red. We're all in the conversion business, right? It's just that we're right. <laughs> we have the truth. So not only do we use motivations that we have in order to teach our children, but we are duty-bound and righteous to do so by any means necessary. But candy, as good as it is, can't even compare to the promises that Scripture makes if we merely seek wisdom and obey and thank God for that, because an eternity with him is so much better than an eternity with Starburst. Look at the scriptures with me of the promises for obedience. Number one, life. Proverbs chapter 3 is the biggest promiser, uh, along with chapter 4. But it promises life in chapter 3 a, a total of four times. And it's found throughout the first seven chapters countlessly. Wisdom is a tree of life to those who hold to her, says verse 18 of chapter 3. And in all in all, uh, life is promised, I think, nine times in, in the seven chapters in the beginning of Proverbs. And it's characterized not only by a long life of years, but an abundant life. Riches and honor, it says. A, a great principle that means that uh, not only because you don't cheat, you won't suffer loss, but... There's this spiritual element. Jesus warns that if we store our treasures on earth, moth and thief will, will steal and destroy, right? But Proverbs teaches that when we walk in integrity, we will have enduring riches that will be restored when we lose them. Pleasantness and peace. It says, in the ways of wisdom are pleasantness to all, and her paths are peace. Proverbs 3.17, you will escape trouble that lies in wait for those who devise trouble for themselves. God will protect you so that you may not fear disaster. And whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster, he promises in chapter 1, verse 33. And my favorite is this, a satisfying marriage. That's in chapter 5. For those who seek wisdom, they will not welcome lust for another into their heart. Solomon calls it a fire that we bring to our breast and then it devours and burns us. If you listen to wisdom, then your eyes will not be tainted. If you listen to wisdom, your eyes will not wander because you have trained them to be only for your spouse. They are for your spouse and your spouse alone. No longer does all that junk of having played or fantasized, no longer does that junk pollute your mind and cause you to hope in something that your spouse can never provide you with. That you entertain the idea, maybe I can get it from somebody else. Instead, chapter 5 promises that you will be intoxicated by their romantic and partnering love that their body will always satisfy you. Solomon, in his wisdom, says that a wife of an honorable man will be as sexy as a lovely deer and a graceful doe. 
I question that. <laughs> Maybe beauty standards were different 2,000 years ago, but um, yes. <laughs> Do with that what you will, I guess. But the promise is that if your eye is for your spouse and your spouse alone, then you will be enjoyed by your spouse and your spouse alone, and you will enjoy your spouse and your spouse alone. And that's a good thing. The promises of Scripture are great for those who seek wisdom by it. So those are the first two. The first is that the Father's wisdom is because His nature is good. The Father's wisdom is sound because His nature is good. Secondly, it is sound because He points to Scripture that makes good promises. And finally, the Father's wisdom is sound because it comes from hard-won personal experience. Growing up in the 90s in California, we had a, a heroin problem, and uh, I think it was Nancy Reagan. She did the D.A.R.E. program. Is that right? Is that Nancy Reagan? Just say no, right? It's the drug abuse resistance education, they called it. And they would bring in a police officer, and they would say, don't do drugs. This is a picture of somebody who does drugs. Look how bad they are. Be good. Don't do that. And then, again, candy, right? But the whole point of it is, is that because of that program, to this day, I have not once touched, smoked, eaten, whatever, a single illicit drug in my entire life. Not a single puff, which is quite remarkable, I've been told, for someone who grew up in Los Angeles. And so, I can say that here. I can't say that in Los Angeles. Well, I can, and they all clap or something. I don't know. They're weird. But the truth is that I, I don't do that because of the wisdom. But my brother did the same program, so... What's his life like? Consequences because of drug use, constantly, that, that plague his life even to this day. Long-lasting consequence that I think will impact him for the rest of his life. So why is it that I listened, my brother didn't, even though we got the same education? Because at the time, I was very close with my mother, who, growing up in the 60s, did enjoy or the lack thereof, every single drug in existence. And she would sit me down and say, little boy, <laughs> do you know how bad it causes you to behave if your pursuit is illicit drugs? And I listened to her personal experience. My brother was at odds with her, never got that wisdom, and I think it affected him for life. There's something to be said about gaining personal stories of warning rather than just getting a mere advertisement of caution, isn't there? Somehow the, 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 the warning label on the box of cigarettes never spoke to me as much as the x-rays of my grandfather's emphysema. I looked at the black tar raisins shriveled up inside him, and I thought, I can't do this. It speaks to me. And this is what makes the final wisdom of the Father good because it's his hard-won lessons of experience. It might be easy to forget when reading the Proverbs, but who wrote it? Say it. Who, who wrote it? So Solomon, yes. We don't usually have this participatory sermon style in this church, do we? The man who taxed his nation into poverty, who let idolatry run rampant into the kingdom, and he married or was sexually linked to, the, as we count, a thousand women, likely much more than that. 
Do you think that he knows a thing or two about wise business partnering or cultivating a pure and lust-free heart? Not as far as how to do it. No, obviously not. But he knows the consequence of not doing it. He knows the pain of disobedience. It's not just a blanket caution. He knew something much more valuable, that if you indulge in sin, it will kill. And this is the greatest teacher of all. F.B. Meyer writes this in a book, I think it's called Finding Christ in Isaiah, a little tiny pamphlet. You'll miss it if you don't look for it. It says this, this is the bitterest of all, to know that the suffering need not have been, that it has resulted from indiscretion and inconsistencies, that it is the harvest of one's own sowing, that the vulture which feeds on the vitals is a nestling of one's own rearing. Ah, me, this is pain. The laws of heart and home, he continues, of soul and human life cannot be violated with impunity. Sin may be forgiven. The fire of penalty may be changed into merely the, 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 the fire of trial. And the love of God may seem nearer and dearer than ever. Yet there will always be the painful pressure of pain, the trembling of heart, the failing of the eyes, and pining of soul, the harp on the willows, and the refusal of the lip to sing the Lord's song. Pain always follows indiscretion, always follows foolishness. You may be forgiven. Your consequence may be reduced. But there will always be a failing of the eyes, a pining of soul, and because you are so guilty of failure to sing the Lord's song. And Solomon knew that. In fact, if we're technical, this is multi-generational wisdom. For while Solomon is teaching it to his son, Proverbs 4 reveals that it is actually his father's wisdom. Right? When I was a son with my father, he taught me and said to me, keep my commandments and live. Do you think David knew about pain and disobedience? Do you think David knew about trusting in the Lord, yet there are those who surround him to kill him? Do you think he knew about the consequence that indiscretion brings? Psalm 31, I am in distress, my eye is wasted from grief, and my soul and body also. My life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing, my strength fails me because of my iniquity and my bones waste away also. This is the cry of Proverbs. I know these work because I know just as well that forsaking this wisdom brings pain. Because every single story found in Proverbs, every single piece of wisdom has a tale of woe behind it. And if you shall not listen to the nature of man, if you shall not listen to the promises he gives, that's one thing. But if you refuse to the warnings of pain, if, if you refuse to listen to the warnings of pain, then you are the greatest scale of fool. And I I could go on all day. We need to wrap this up. He's also got tales of victory that we need to listen to. And I've got a thing about us saying, Oh, I, when's it gonna be my turn for God to show himself? I, I can tell you this. 
listen to the victories of another. <laughs> you do not want to know what it's like to go through a need for God. It, it is not fun. I've been there. You will all go through there, and we will all see the Lord deliver. But let us listen to the victories of someone else to build our faith. It is enough. <laughs> I do not want to remember the times of woe that I had. And the only thing that made it bearable was the fact that I was delivered. Listen to the woe. Listen to the victories. Let it build your faith. True wisdom looks like this. And trust it because it is sound. And because it comes from a good father. We're done. Um, who can live a life in such a hostile and foolish world especially when our nature is to be foolish and to hate wisdom. Our nature is to cling to stupidity. Who can do that? I don't know about you, but I know that the answer is certainly not me. Right? I can't. How desperate I am for wisdom and how great our Father is because not only does He require obedience, but He loves us enough to teach us how to obey. And, and if you missed this, here's, here it is. The father, in the Proverbs, Solomon teaching his son, your goal is to look at it and say, my father is teaching me his child, right? This, this is where it goes. Cherish the wisdom in his book. It will be beautiful to you. It is wisdom that he teaches. Listen because of his nature. Listen because of his promises in his scripture. And listen, because he knows the consequence of disobedience through hard-won experience. And his words will be a graceful garland for your head and beautiful pendants for your neck. Let's pray. Dear Father, we, we love you, but we don't always follow that we love you. We don't always show that we love you, least of all through obedience, which is bad for us because you say this is the love of God, that you keep his commandments. So how we need your wisdom and how we need not hate the ones who give it to us. Let us love you and let us love your messengers who bring good news of how to obey, especially if it is our father or a father figure or someone else who loves us as a father should. Father, I thank you so much for your wisdom which teaches and saves. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.